<laughs> and he leaves. <laughs> How classic is that? <laughs> oh my god! I can't wait I to go like back and listen to this. I don't know. We used to work with professionals. <laughs> We're anything but. Oh, okay. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Back to the Guns and Mental Health podcast. We love your listening audience. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Mike Sudini is my co-host. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. Hello, Michael. Hey, what's happening? I'm excited, man. We got the big three of Walk to Talk America here. You think in terms of board members, the big three, the three that, that do the most. I know I do. I definitely do think of just three because we're the only ones here. Uh, Rob Pincus being the other one. Hello, Rob. Hi, I'll be the other one. Uh, yeah, good to be here. So I'm excited. You guys have done a great job with this new uh, podcast, and I'm glad we're finally uh, getting a chit-chat on it. Like, I don't know if this, if this even counts as a podcast episode or it's just like dudes talking about mental health because that's what we do every time we chat or text or phone or hang out. That's true. We do. Uh, Like for for those of you who may not be familiar, um, I came into this uh, pretty late into the game. Uh, Rob and Mike had been friends for a number of years and I've only been around for about a year. Um, But we've all become, you know, like really good friends. I think I'm safe in saying that. And I enjoy the company of the people that we've had on the podcast. Uh, Certainly Rob and Mike. Um, Mike's in Vegas. I'm in Reno. Even though you may not realize that Reno and Vegas are six and a half hours apart by drive time. Uh, <laughs> we, do, we do talk quite a bit. And um, whenever he comes up here, or I go down there. We stay at each other's houses and we've become really, really good friends. And it's, it's a really cool dynamic. And we do talk about this stuff as though it matters. It's not, it's not just a side gig. And I appreciate you saying that, Rob. Because um, this, this is, I mean, this is a, it's more than a hobby or just this thing that we think we're going to help contribute to society with. It's, it's our passion. Yeah, it's definitely become that. And, and, you know, kudos to Mike for making that even something that I knew I cared about as much as I did, I think is the way I would describe it because it was the opportunity to really focus on how can I do more for the gun community in relation to mental health or, or understanding mental health and, you know, reducing negative outcomes has always been a part of, you know, what I do in, in terms of advocacy and training, but other than mentioning suicide prevention here and there, dementia here and there, you know, if you're on a new drug, uh, you know, probably want to see how it affects your behavior or prescription drug before you, you know, just start carrying your gun like normal. But it was really very much an also, right? And then Mike provided this opportunity to, to make it more of a focus. And uh, it really has been amazing how much good, WTTA has done and I'm just really proud to be associated with it and obviously you joining the team last year is 
you know, kickstarted that up to, to a couple of levels, more than just one level up. So, um, for sure. What, you know, it's interesting, Rob, I always see, uh, it's funny how we are, we're, we're part of walk to talk America. Um, and for the most part, Jake and I cross paths on a lot of the mayor's challenge and governor's challenge teams and things like that. Um, but there are times when we cross paths in a meeting, like a zoom meeting with another organization and you're not there as walk to talk America. You're there as somebody else. It's always weird to me to see that. <laughs> and it, it's funny. Um, you know, we were, we had a conversation recently, I think, you know, probably an announcement at some point, um, the people that, that we were talking to today, uh, about a great collaboration opportunity for walk to talk America. And I think a great collaboration opportunity for them to, to be a part of what we're doing and, and some of the things that we can do better than they can, obviously any good collaboration that's going to go both ways but it was interesting, you know, the, the way sometimes I have to distinguish, you know, am I wearing the personal defense network hat, the second amendment organization hat, the walks talk America hat, because they are very different. Right. And especially when you start talking about government activities or donations, when they come in or, you know, somebody wanting to take a class, um, are they, are they getting it from the mental health group? Is it a gun rights advocacy thing? Is the donation appropriate here? Is the working with a government agency appropriate for this group? So um, it, it definitely is a lot of different shifting hats. I, I actually thought you were going in a different direction where sometimes we'll end up in the same meeting or the same invite or copied on the same email, both as Walk to Talk America, but unaware that we were working on that same right. thing. Well, that's happened a couple of times too. Yeah, it's just cool to see that it's it's getting out there and, and people are recognizing it and we're starting to go places, um, especially in the mental health side of things that no gun organization has ever gone before, you know, um, it's, it's really transcending across, you know, all different types of fields. Rob. I think that's an important like point for, for you to jump into Jake, because you, I don't consider you the new guy really. I mean, you're, you're doing as much or more than, than anybody else in this organization now. And, and you, when you came in, you just kind of showed up and started doing it. Uh, but you came in from the mental health side. Right. So you may be like the, the best example of our collaboration, Walk Talk America's collaboration with mental health, because now you're you're you do that, too. Right. I imagine you have the same thing Whereas sometimes I'm wearing gun rights advocacy hat. Sometimes I'm wearing WTTA mental health gun guy hat. You've got to do the same thing, I imagine, because you're professionally in the mental health field. Yeah, it, um, I borrow a phrase from a friend of mine who's been a big influence in my life, Christian Conti, who I've mentioned multiple times across multiple media. Um, he says, sometimes it sounds a little cartoonish when I when I start talking about what it is all that I do. And um, I, I sit on a bunch of boards and committees and commissions and coalitions and all sorts of things. And, and, and sometimes I forget. Uh, when I'm in the midst of speaking, because I just I just I immerse myself in the conversation, and I I know I can draw from a lot of different um, experiences and and places of uh, authority, I guess you could say. And so whether it's authoring policy and legislation or helping somebody to you know get into the field, uh, you know I work, do a lot of work with fledgling clinicians and students. Um, I run my own agency. Um, I I supervise. And then I do the this advocacy stuff, which I'm I'm really quite in a, a blessed position to be able to do because not a lot of people in my field can take the time that it takes, because to do so would be to to take away from their face to face time where they're billing for their services, and I'm fortunate enough to have a company that's generating my salary for me, and I don't have to um, you know do the 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 grinded out thirty hours a week of of psychotherapy with 
individuals um, because I have a whole staff of employees and I, I, I'm very, very aware and I want to pay heed to that and be as, as full of gratitude as I can because I don't ever want to take that for granted. It's only because of the staff that we have that I'm allowed to do the things that I, I am and be that voice. There's not a lot of us in my community doing that for that reason I just outlined. It's the same reason there's not a lot of physicians out there you know, doing advocacy work because it takes away from their day job. So I appreciate you saying that, and, and it, is, it is a little different. Sometimes I do the – for the listening audience, you're hearing this, you're not seeing the video, but I, I will literally put – uh, my hand on my head and like I'm wearing a hat and take one off and put one on and I will announce it like I'm wearing my walk the talk America hat now like Rob just did um, to, to let the whoever I'm talking to know what role I'm in so that we don't get roles conflated but for for Rob I'm, I'm interested because I don't think I ever actually heard from you at any point how you got interested in the mental health stuff you're you're a trainer by by trade I guess you could say principally yeah, as an, as an educator in the gun world and then as someone who is a gun rights advocate, the mental health stuff comes up, right? And we're confronted with it at different points. Uh, and whether I think that everybody in the gun community kind of has to make a decision if they're going to uh, acknowledge that and, and sort of uh, just like you would, you, you, if you're going to carry a gun in public, you're going to have to deal with holsters, right? And holsters may not be your thing. But you got to have the gun in a holster if you're going to carry it around in public with your concealed carry permit. So you got to somewhat get into holsters. But if holsters isn't your thing, you're going to pick up your first holster that fits the gun, that fits on your belt, that's comfortable enough, and you're going to move forward. And, and honestly, that's kind of how I was, I think, with, with mental health issues. Because as, from an advocacy standpoint, I've always maintained, I shouldn't say always, but it, certainly for the last decades, I've been really active trying to change people's opinions about gun owners and gun rights in America, or at least influence people who don't have a strong opinion to be favorable, to have a favorable opinion of guns and gun rights. I, I believed it, during that time that the best way we can advocate for ourselves as a gun community is to be more responsible, to do more to, you know, the phrase I use now is reduce negative outcomes, right? Like we don't want our guns to get stolen. We don't want to have accidents with them. We don't want to have accidents that destroy property, have accidents that hurt ourselves, have accidents that shoot other people on the range, accidents that shoot people off the range, the tragedy with the kid getting a loaded gun and, and hurting themselves or killing themselves or another kid. And suicide is part of that, right? So when we think about all the negative outcomes, what, what has become glaringly obvious to people paying attention inside and out of the gun community the biggest block of negative outcomes that we can really address and do something about are firearms involved suicides. And that's obviously not just a gun issue, right? There's a mental health side of that. There's a gun side of that. A lot of people would argue that the mental health side is far more important than the access to a gun, but we can't deny that access to a gun in that impulsive moment of a suicide attempt or the impulsive moment leading up to the suicide attempt is going to empower a more successful suicide attempt, right? So I've learned that through the, the facts, through anecdote, through the testimony, through observation, and just through logic, that all makes sense to me, that we can and should be doing something about that. So there wasn't any kind of immersion from a mental health side. It really was, I mean, somewhat uh, self-preservation, right? How do we protect our gun community from attacks from that are coming from without and realizing we've got this huge issue right in our laps with people who have access to guns, American gun owners and suicide. And let's address that. And, and that was, but it was, again, I have to stress, it was very casual. It was very much like, 
I need a holster. I've got a holster. I'm good. Move on until Mike created this amazing opportunity to really take more accountability, take more responsibility, learn more about it, work with people like you, work with Mental Health America, work with other organizations to address these issues in a, in a much more educated way. And I don't, I, I don't want to get the impression that it was ever, I was ever just saying, oh, and also prevent suicide, you know, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where the, the gaps were. I didn't really think about where the holes were that could be filled or have the knowledge to do it until Walk to Talk America. Right. And I think that's an opportunity to kick it to Mike to explain, you know, where you come from and why you founded this thing in the beginning. Because this is a pretty heavy lift. Get a nonprofit, you know, a 501c3 off the ground to go change minds and bring two very pre previously disparate uh, cultures together. Talk about the motivation. Well, the motivation came from just how I was raised. Um, I, I grew up in a family that was constantly at odds with each other. Um, I, I always had to play mediator and that's the same way I looked at it with the firearms industry and the mental health side. And when I was in uh, New Orleans and that, I was at that chance dinner with a lady and she said, how do you work with the mental health side? If you know that it's not the gun, it's a mental health issue. And those were statements. I was a little naive back then. I didn't understand everything, but I thought, I applied the same thing I did with my family members and my friends who always got in fights. I was like, well, you know, we don't have to come off, off of our principles of, of how we feel about the second amendment to actually work with people to find solutions. Let's find them. Now I was naive in the beginning. I thought it would, we could just hand money obviously over to the mental health side and you know, they had all the outreach, they had all the programs and everything like that. It was oh, actually, yeah, we, sure, we sure do. <laughs> no, I know. So this is, this is the great thing about Robbie. Cause when I went to Colorado to meet with Debbie from mental health America, she's the vice president of mental mental health America. Um, you know, I got frustrated and I was kind of, ha I had a moment where I was like, is this even worth it? Do we, can we even do anything? Because they didn't have, I thought they had programs and plans like that. And Rob was one of the guys who's like, dude, we could just build them ourselves. We don't need, other people, let's just, now that we're in this and we know that there's nothing out there, um, you know, we can build them ourselves. Um, and that's really kind of one of the most exciting things about Walk to Talk America because in the beginning, like I said, there was, there was a moment where I said, oh man, like, there, you know, there's going to be nothing that they don't have anything. <laughs> and, and what are we going to do? And slowly but surely we started figuring out, well, what if we did this? Well, what if we you know, created a safe storage space. What if we encourage that? What if we had this, this program where we put free and anonymous mental health screenings in a firearms box? What if we put these bracelets and handed them out to people and started encouraging people to conversation, you know, to talk about these stuff to this stuff. And it worked out. And Rob is one of the, you know, I, I couldn't have disagreed with you more back then. Right, Rob, because I did, you know, I wanted to take the easy way out. I was like, I just want to raise money and hand it over. Um, but you were one of the people that flipped over the table, you know, when we had, we brought in a, a consultant to come in and listen to us and said, look, we got to make this gu a gun thing, gun by us, for us, you know, um, we start here and then branch out. And I think that's what we've done. We've done a great job with that. So, yeah, uh, we, I mean, there were, there were, it's like anything though. There were 10 ideas like over that first six months, maybe we could do this. Do this. And, and some of those were internal. Um, some of those were opportunities where people say, Hey, what about this? Or could you do this? Or you want to support this? I mean, there's been things that we've executed on, I think far beyond, you know, expectations. And there's been other things that 
haven't even, they never got off the ground. There's other things we still want to do that we haven't been able to put the time and energy to. Um, and, and again, more opportunities, more conversations come up. Um, you know, Jake getting involved is a huge opportunity for us to reach to the mental health community. Um, Jake, what, that's so important to me, the, the idea that you saw this opportunity for us to come in and educate people on the mental health side about the gun culture. And, and that was not really on our radar as a priority early on at all. It was, it was, I think it was, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but from my perspective, that it was more like they'll see that we're doing good things and that we're saying the right things and then they'll respect us more and we're cool. Right. right. I don't think we, either one of us really saw it as an, as a, we need to go teach a class. We need to go have bullet points and say, here's gun people. Here's how gun people are. And, and Jake, it was you that made that possible uh, because, you know, basically vouching for us and then helping us find the, the vernacular, I guess, and, and the opportunity what kicked that off? Like, why did you think now was the time or we were the guys or this was the organization or give me some of that? Well, it turns out I interviewed a lot of different organizations uh, that were trying to do the same thing. And I picked, no, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, uh, so a little bit of backstory. I, I was not always this bold. Um, I'd been kind of, I guess, metaphorically kicked around a lot by various employers and had a bunch of false start careers. And, and then one day I was like, this is crap. I don't like working for other people. I'm going to form my own company. And I grabbed a couple of partners, one of whom is still with me. And that's Lindsay Bell, my, uh, my partner at Zephyr Wellness. And, um, and we formed our own company because we, we thought we could do it better our way and do it ethically and make agency work desirable. So little little bird walk side note to this whole thing. If you're listening and you don't understand mental health, it, over the years, it's basically been bifurcated into you work for a mega corporation like a, like a hospital or somebody, or you go into solo private practice or the government. And so maybe it's trifurcated. Um, so you can, you can work for government doing, you know, uh, rural clinic stuff or hospital stuff with, you know, within the state agencies, um, or you work for a big hospital or, a uh, you know, some sort of uh, treatment center that's grant funded or it's corporate health or something like that, or you, you tack up your shingle. And most of those big entities, um, for, for lack of a better phrase, uh, they, they turn it into kind of slave labor. Um, they, they, they're all about the bottom line and even government does this to some degree. They don't, they don't treat their employees very well. So we were like, we need to make agency work desirable because not everybody's cut out to be, you know, in private practice. They don't want to deal with the insurance billing. They don't want to deal with the, the, the liability insurance, the, the rent payments, the overhead, the, the systemic stuff that you have to put in for the infrastructure. And not everybody wants to work for, the man, you know, uh, grinding it out, uh, being asked to do things outside the scope of what you signed in to the field to do. And, um, so that kind of set the wheels in motion for me to do other things where I started tackling a lot of the orthodoxy that had been handed down generation upon generation into our field, uh, challenging systems. And, uh, and then I found myself on my licensing board, uh, because I was challenging the way that things had been in Nevada for a very long time, a lot of political turf warring, a lot of um, just nastiness, um, protectionism. I didn't like that because it didn't benefit anybody. And, and the result was Nevada became ranked dead last in behavioral health in the country where we've resided for the last three years consecutively. And I was like, there's a better way to do this. And the better way to do this is to, to get into the mix and stop like throwing rocks from the sideline at the faceless organization and just become a part of it. 
change from the inside. So then I found myself reauthoring a lot of the the laws in Nevada, uh, which made which brought us up to date. We we were thirty years out of date on a lot of things, and that put me in touch with the idea that hey, we could we can teach courses and give continuing education credit to clinicians. So I started thinking in terms of like, how can we better educate our clinicians in new and innovative ways? Well, then along comes Mike. And the the story there was uh, one of my best friends from college happens to manage a a local range and retail store here in in Reno, which is, uh, I I think, the the premier uh, agency around. It's called Reno Guns and Range, and they do things very, very well. And his mom owns it. His name's Jordan Slotnick. Uh, highly recommend looking up renoguns.com if you want to follow them. But um, he and I have been talking about this thing for for a couple of years. How do we how do we bridge the gap? How do we make um, you know people safer? How do we how do we use what he had and what I have to to advance society, so to speak? Well, one day he texts me. He goes, "Hey, have you heard about Walk the Talk America?" And I, I tell this story sometimes. <laughs> I said, "No, I hadn't." And immediately, you know, Googled Walk the Talk America, and I found this the website, and I was like, "Holy cow, guns and mental health! This is crazy!" So I uh, I emailed them, uh, not knowing that it was basically one guy, <laughs> Mike, who replied to my email. And I was like, hey, I have this mental health podcast. Would you like to be on it? And he accepted. And then three hours later, we were BFFs. And uh, a couple months after that, I was like, hey, you know what we can do? Because my people, the clinicians, are really skittish about firearms. We don't know anything. Um, by and large, we just we just don't talk about it. So what if we, we craft a class for which people can get continuing education? Uh, and they'll, they'll jump all over that, especially if it's low cost. Uh, we'll talk about the culture of firearms and firearms ownership, which I, growing up around guns, had never even been exposed to. My, my, I got a family full of cops, and the gun was seen as a tool of the job. We didn't, we didn't collect them, we didn't play with them, we didn't, sh- we didn't com- com- competitively shoot. Um, it was just this thing that, that I take to work. Uh, and Rob's analogy of the the car culture is very, very appropriate, and I'll. Excuse me, I'll let you explain that in a minute because I think it's it's awesome for the uninitiated to be able to compare the two. Um, but as I immersed into the the firearms culture, I learned so much from you guys that I then became what Rob talked about earlier as far as like people who are sort of ambivalent about Second Amendment rights um, didn't really have an opinion. Well, now I have an opinion and I get it. I'm, I'm not just like, yeah, sure. A little gun restrictions. Okay. Cause people are unsafe. It's like, no, that's, that's not right at all. So I, I formulated my own opinion. I crystallized it. Um, and then I was like, wait, these two can coexist. You can be mentally unhealthy and own firearms and they don't have to be at the same time. We can do temporary timeouts. We can um, advocate for safety uh, without having the government tell us what to do. And I think that's what what Rob was teeing off with there about, you know, the, the firearms community should do this on its own because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's good to be responsible. It's good to have your own understanding of what it, what it means to carry a holster instead of just a skin carry in your waistband or whatever. So to take that up a notch and say, let's, let's embrace mental wellness to the point that it becomes a part of firearms culture, I think is really uh, remarkable. And so that led to the authorship of the course, the getting it, you know, accredited with the, the various behavioral health boards in Nevada. And we'd like to take it obviously nationally so that anybody from across the country can take our courses and they can be replicated so that clinicians can become competent. And then the flip side of that coin is the firearms community is no longer skittish about coming in to get their, their minds checked. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, 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 again, great synergy. It, it's and so glad that you, you took that opportunity just to complete that circle. Jordan runs a lot of the admin uh, stuff for my training company. And we were talking about walk talk, obviously, because of the kind of passion I now have for that. Our targets are marked with WTTA contact information. He's the one that ships out all those targets now. And his staff actually teaches a lot of my programs for the defensive shooting side. So uh, that's, that's where that kind of connection came from. Even though you guys have been talking about it, Mike and I are doing this other thing and Jordan and I work together uh, on the training side. So it's, um, it's definitely a great opportunity that you took uh, to, to reach out to Mike that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know any of that. And that was super cool. He's like, of course I know Rob, he trains all our people. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like (laughs) my head blows up. Mike, Mike is a social butterfly of the gun community. You can do that like three degrees of Mike Sedini in the gun community outside the gun community. It takes five. He still <laughs> hey, this all fell into place. Like, thank God we have this piece because this piece is something that resonates with so many different people. I mean, Jake and I have, have, have had so many conversations about people from other uh, avenues that have said, have you thought about doing it for something like this? You know, um, yeah, I think of like the, the lowest swishers and everybody like that, that, that has really resonated with, um, you know, but one thing I want to get back to before we forget and move on is, is I do want Rob to give that, uh, analogy that you always do in our class that yeah. really resonates with people about car culture, car culture. Yeah. So it, it, it actually, it originated in conversations in Europe, uh, because people, you know, there's a lot of people, especially in the gun community in Europe, yeah, I think it's, I guess it's like, I don't know, pastry chefs or like, you know, wine connoisseurs think of France, right? Like, oh, I got to go to France and like really get some good pastries. So there's great pastries in the U.S. And there's great gun culture inside of a lot of places in Europe. In fact, some of the most popular guns in the U.S. are European guns, right? So when I'm teaching over in Italy or Germany or wherever, there'll be these questions about that, that sort of presume that everybody in America has guns and, and guns are great, except maybe there's three or four politicians that are apparently trying to take away the guns. And it's like, no. Nah, a little more complex than that you know we got 50 states you guys have like 407 countries over here and, and you know each country is a little different our states are a little different but it, it is definitely fair to say that the united states of america as a whole is a gun culture but then breaking that down for them uh one of the easy comparisons is car culture right because everyone in the in the you know sort of uh industrial world the post-industrial world if you're in the first or second world car culture makes sense right so the idea that in the united states it should make sense too and that's where this conversation started being really useful this this analogy started being really useful in conversations for people who just weren't part of the gun community where i could say to them okay you know are you into cars and it was if they said yes cool we can talk about that if they said no cool we can talk about that too because it kind of works either way right when when i say the united states of america is a car culture has a car culture it's a, it's a car centric kind of country that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But especially from the outside, if you just think that means everybody's super passionate about cars, that would be wrong. Right. And like you just said, Jake, like your family, the the gun was a tool. My dad was a cop for him. The gun was a tool. He wasn't super into guns, right? He like had a gun, like many people have cars and many people just have a car. Like they need it, right? Like they, they don't live in a dense city. There's no public transportation. They live out in the suburbs or in the sticks or 
whatever. They got to take their kids to school. They got to get to work. They got to get groceries. Maybe somebody works on a farm or lives on a farm. They need a pickup truck or they need some kind of a vehicle that can carry cargo and, and dirty cargo. Maybe it's got to be able to pull a trailer for either the, the vegetables or for the pesticides or for the cattle or whatever it is. Maybe somebody else lives in, a, in an urban environment and the car has to be small to be able to find parking. And maybe somebody else really is a car enthusiast and they may have a couple cars. And one of them is their special car they love that has no practical purpose really in their life, but it's something they enjoy using. And if you're already picturing that, you're probably picturing something specific to a car enthusiast niche, not any kind of special car, right? And, and so what are the niches? Well, the niches could be Jeep people, right, or off-road people. The niche could be sports car people. The niche could be classic cars that you, you know, spend three years restoring in your garage on, you know, three hours on a Saturday night, you know, three weeks a, a month for, for five years, and now you've got this 1950-something restored car. Uh, maybe it's a brand that you're into, right? That's a Chevy versus Ford, BMW versus Mercedes. Car enthusiasm takes a lot of different routes as well as whether you are enthusiastic about a car or not and you just have one. And then, sure, there's people that don't have cars. There's people that live in Manhattan and I'm sure a couple other cities around the country where you can live just fine without a car. And we know that there's plenty of people who, who use public transportation around the world especially, but they still know cars exist, and, and they understand the idea of cars being ubiquitous. Cars come with danger. Cars need to be maintained. You need to learn how to use a car responsibly. Some people use cars really well. Some people don't use cars really well. Some people maintain their cars really well. Some people don't. Well, all of the things I just said – you could say about guns, right? And if you're not a gun person, you're not going to understand the difference between a trap shooter and a long-range precision shooter and someone who just has a gun because they, they want to be able to defend themselves. Or so maybe you know the difference between a handgun and a rifle, like you would know the difference between a pickup and a sports car, but you don't really know the difference between all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive or a, a sports car that is uh, mid-engine versus uh, front engine versus rear engine. There, there's a lot of different nuances to guns, like there are different nuances to cars, and, and it does seem like there are more people who are very, very curious about guns, but really have no idea what that gun community or culture is about. Whereas cars, it, it's so easy and available. If, you want to, if you're curious about cars, then boom, you go to like the car club meeting or you go to the, the racetrack or whatever, you figure it out. And that's all politics and it's all culture and it's all sort of fear-based and there's shaming involved. You know, people are like closeted gun owners in certain communities and all this. And, and I think it really helps for people to understand the gun community without ever having to step foot in it, to think of the parallels in car culture, particularly in the United States. And it, and it does seem to resonate and we can go down any of those rabbit holes from there if somebody wants to go down. My follow-up question to that has to do with um, how, now that we've got um, record-setting firearm sales in the United States due to the pandemic, civil unrest, and so forth, um, we've got a lot of, quote-unquote, new car owners. Um, and one of the major concerns that we have that is shared with several of the organizations uh, with whom we're partnered is that a lot of these new gun owners don't necessarily uh, get trained they don't necessarily know how to maintain their their car, their cars their, their guns, um, and, or they're they're not storing them safely. Um, so, how do we how do we send the message now? How do we embrace the the new people in in our in our gun culture, 
and welcome them in without the stigma that that often is, is associated to me the the welcoming of new gun owners is doing exactly what we do um the way that we have carried ourselves as an organization the way all of us carry ourselves when we're amongst people who aren't necessarily gun people um i like the way we handle it um it's not being political it's educating it's there's not a stupid question um i think about i actually had a conversation today with somebody from an organization that um you know, got down to it and it was kind of like, where do you guys side on? And I said, we're apolitical. So we really don't care about what the politics thing is. There are individuals that make up the organization that have political opinions, but the organization as a whole, we check it at the door. We don't let that get in the way of our mission. We don't let it get in the way of of educating people who want to be educated and quite frankly, some of them who don't, right. I mean, we're in rooms sometimes and we have to talk about the things that we, we do and, and what it's like um, in terms of, you know, gun culture and everything and, and the industry side of it. Um, so I think that, that the way we do it is exactly what walk the talk America is all about. We don't care what you, you think, what you want uh, in terms of uh, legislation, um, if you really want to save lives, uh, then, then you can understand it. And it goes the same with welcoming new gun owners. We have to understand that new gun owners aren't necessarily going to have some of the same views that the common two a community, uh, individual has, right. We can't expect them to not, we, we should expect them to come through the door and maybe be okay with some restriction. Right. And it's our job to have the conversations in such a civil manner and play with their ideas uh, to borrow like the phrase from Christian Conti that you love is, is meet them where they're at. Right. Um, and that's how I think we handle it. Um, not rubbing it in people's faces, not going now all you people know what, what, you know, now you're learning when you have to have a waiting period, you know, like I, I remember seeing a video when this all started to jump off and there was these sales and there was a gun store owner out of California that was very frustrated because um, a lot of people, especially, I think he was, I think he was flat out calling them liberals, <laughs> right? Um, which I, which I hate, anyways. I hate it when we do that in in the community, um, because we just single out a whole group of people that are gun owners, <laughs> you know, um, and and maybe want to be gun owners, and then we go off and we do that thing where we start throwing out uh, libtards and all that, you know, the, the crazy left, and we just lump them all together, and it just turns people off. But this gentleman was was venting about how people were frustrated that they couldn't just buy their gun in California and go home with it. And I wanted to jump through the screen and shake them because I was like, that is exactly how we don't do it. All right. That's that's exactly how we don't do it. This this guy's gonna turn off so many people that are are like, okay, I'm here now and I'm ready to learn and I want to meet guys like Jake and Rob. Yeah. Right? I- I told you so doesn't work real well for for people if you want to avoid eliciting their defensive response, you know, neurologically, um, shaking a finger in their face. uh, That's that's not good. And, And we encounter that in the mental health world all the time. You know, can you imagine somebody who's been resistant to treatment all the you know all their life and then, you know, something finally shakes loose and they come into the counseling session and they tell me, for example, as a therapist, like, yeah, I never thought I'd find myself in this chair. And I go, ha, 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 you know, you should have been in here a long time ago. It's like, well, I'm not, I wasn't, you didn't talk to me a long time ago. I'm here now. 
right? So it doesn't do any good and it elicits defensiveness and it pushes people away. Um, I was one of those closeted gun owners because my, I was afraid of what my community was going to say about me and around me and to me. Mike, you're, you're known as the ungun gun guy. Um, even though you sold them for, you know, many years and you're like third generation, uh, importer in your family, you were that, that guy who didn't know guns. Right. And, and you, you tell a great story about the first time shooting a gun. Uh, how did how did you get through that, and how did you like integrate? You're the social butterfly now. <laughs> well, yeah, that's just it, right? And and I've talked to this about with Rob before. I had to fake my way for the first time I shot a gun. Um, the expectation level on me because of my family was already there, so no one even asked. Like, do you know what you're doing? And uh, my pride, I didn't want to let that. You know, I felt like I had to be a man. I had to go out there and, and shoot. And I just literally watched everybody that went before me and copied them. And I, you know, I always say I I probably needed my brown pants that day at the range because I was really scared. Um, so there, it's a weird, interesting you know, dynamic with people that you'll have when you really don't, when everyone expects you to know something and you kind of just sit around and they never really question you. Um, so I faked my way through a lot of it and I had to learn just from friends and, you know, like Charlie Brown from MKS high point is one of my mentors. I remember the first time they dropped me off to work the NRA show in Philadelphia when I was younger um, my uncle said, good luck. I'll see you in three days. And he just took off. Right. And I met the NRA show at the, in this booth and Charlie Brown goes, you know, a lot of, do you know a lot about guns? <laughs> I said, I don't know anything. And I cause he saw me looking at the, uh, he saw me looking at the, you know, our, our flyer, our brochure. <laughs> I was trying to become familiar with everything. Um, and that's, you know, that's just how it was. And that's one of the reasons why I actually love the firearms industry and the people in it. Um, it was real easy for me to, uh, to defend them when people would say things outside of the industry, like, oh, it's a bunch of old white racists or, you know, they don't really care about people. They only care about standing on graves. Well, if that was true, then I wouldn't. I wouldn't be part of it, you know, and I saw how they treated me and how they accepted me and, you know, taking me on hunts and everything like that. It's just, you know, that's something that I've always loved about the industry. And I will always love about the industry, even though sometimes I get super frustrated with the industry when they act a certain way about certain things like mental health. <laughs> so, uh, and, and don't think for a second that my people don't do it either. I mean, we get very rigid about our own beliefs and how things sh should be done. Quote unquote. Um, we, we marry ourselves to our, um, so, you know, modalities in which we, you know, uh, enter into the session and treat people. It's like CBT is better than Jungian analytic psychology. It's like, uh, they, you know, as long as we're helping people that I don't think that matters. And what I've found over the last, 18 months or so that I've been associated with you guys is um, I've, I've found a lot stronger voice in clinical application where I'm saying, listen, let's just normalize what people are going through. So if we normalize firearms ownership, like it's just a thing, like it's just, I own a car, I own, a, I own 30 cars. Some of them are in disrepair. Some of them are in you know, great shape. Uh, some of them are really polished. Some of them are souped up to see how fast they can go. And people may cock an eyebrow at owning 30 cars. 
um, that's fine. But that's that's just where that person is, and they, they, that's their, what they're into. Uh, as much as playing baseball or playing lacrosse or ice skating or any other hobby, I think my ability to step into that space and go, yeah, I own guns, and here's a few of them, and, and I can talk about that now with my, my clinical community. People tend to go, oh, oh, you oh, you do. And it makes the conversation a little more natural and normal. Uh, and it and it gives permission then to folks who, um, you know, are maybe firearms owners who also have a clinical degree or a license, similar to people who are struggling with depression or anxiety. It's like, it's not, it's not a problem. Yeah, it may be interfering with your life and you may need some help with it. But we're not going to sit there and look askance at you for dealing with something that you need help with. That's fine. Your, your car is clunking. Take it to the mechanic. Nobody thinks twice about that. Nobody goes, why is your car clunking? But if, if our brain is clunky and it's like, Oh, what's wrong with him? And, and I, I want to end that. And I think we want we need to make the, the conversation about mental wellness as natural and normal as it is about physical wellness. You see people posting, you know, videos, of their CrossFit workouts on Facebook. Um, I want selfies, of, you know, people waiting in the lobby of Zephyr Wellness, you know, you know, click selfie of, uh, you know, getting my anxiety treatment on today. Um, similarly, let's, let's talk about how we go to the range. Let's talk about how we're teaching our kids to handle guns appropriately. Yeah. I tell everyone, uh, it was therapy session after I talked to you, I just feel better about myself and earth. And thank you, Jake. Uh, yeah, well, this is my, good, my pleasure. This is a good segue, Rob, because, uh, I kind of want to, I want to talk about the, the two, a rally that's coming up. Um, the two A rally for me, I thought it was fantastic last year. I thought you did a great job. I I know behind the scenes all the stuff that you went through, all of the people like saying if you have this person talk, I'm not going to speak or I'm not going to show up. It, there were and you were like, we're inviting everybody within the community to come talk, right? And you did a good job. And for the most part, everybody was cool about it. But I saw what you had to deal with. Um I saw that you couldn't win with certain people. Um, you know, people made issues that things weren't supposed to be an issue about like you know, hey, it's not a real rally if you can't have your firearm strapped up to your side. And, you know, those are the type of things that hold us back, I believe, because we don't cross over. Um, but I think it went great. Uh, it was a little bit of an eye opener for me. I got heckled and, uh, you know, it was the first time I had faced adversity talking about <laughs> mental health awareness in the firearms community. I should have probably expected that. Um, I was coming off a little bit of high from the week before presenting in front of the white house, the people at prevents in front of the white house. Um, so I went up there and kind of got punched in the face. Um, but you know, it worked out. Um, <laughs> but having said that you're, you're, you're back at it again. Uh, it's coming up in October, the end of October. Um, talk about that for a minute. Talk about what's going to be new this year. Um, obviously COVID just screwed up so much stuff, right? So now we have to take it online, but that also gives us a lot of opportunity to have maybe even more people speak. Um, quite frankly, I'm going to say like even more controversial speak where you're not going to have hecklers in the crowd. Maybe that, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm to be honest, I'm a little jealous that I'm not there. <laughs> so yeah, the rally is going to be October 24th. It is our second rally. There's a, a team of people working behind the scenes and, and there'll be another team that is uh, sort of the organizing committee, the face of it, which, which I'm part of again. Uh, we did the same thing last year. That was a great team that put the thing together. It was supposed to be really set up as a one and done um, to the point where we even 
committed to purging the uh, email list and, and all of that. Um, and we did that. So there was no, there was no money raised. There's no organization. We didn't sell hats or shirts. And we really just wanted to kind of come from a really pure place. All of the funding last year and this year, there, there really is a need for much funding because I'll talk about that in a minute. That's going virtual. But last year, the funding for the stage and the permits and all that stuff was all anonymous. Um, so it, it did come from people tied to or companies tied to the firearms industry, but all of them went without a banner, without a thank you, without a public acknowledgement, um, which was really important and cool because part of the controversy is, you know, well, even I think Walk Talk America is above 97% of it, but even the big, you know, whether it's NRA or Gun Owners of America or Second Amendment Foundation, there, there are people inside of the gun community that take that position. Well, I'm not working with them. You know, I like this organization. So if they're the sponsor of it, then I'm out. Um, individuals, you know, well, I, is anybody going to be there from this group? Uh, you know, I don't know. What, why I say I don't know and why I say you shouldn't care and why I say none of this matters and why nobody should know where the money's coming from is because this rally should be about and is about why the Second Amendment is important, why the rights that the Second Amendment protects are important, why they should be celebrated and why they should be defended, period. And there, there is no other thing. And, and you can throw darts at the, well, you are all self-promoting. You can throw darts at the, well, you're not inviting the open carry guys. Well, because it'd be a felony, like they're welcome to come. They just can't openly carry their guns because that doesn't work at the nation's capital, right? Um, so everybody can be happy that the speakers can all have guns this year in their videos because we are going to be virtual. Um, that's the big difference is this year because of the permit restrictions at the Capitol. Um, and, and by the way, the Capitol police have been great to work with. Um, they were very apologetic. They realized that this killed the event when they told us we could only have 50 people instead of, you know, five to 10,000, um, which is what we were anticipating this year. Um, but really quickly, we just, we kind of spun to the side and the, the organizing committee, uh, uh, Diana Muller, Chris Chang, uh, Cheryl Todd, and I just kind of pivoted, um, got back with the speakers said, here's what we're doing. You're going to have to record your own speeches and we'll lay in the, the templates and the lower <laughs> thirds and the graphics. And we're going to live host the event. So Paul Lathrop, who did uh, AMCON this year, he's been broadcasting the GRPC for years. Um, he is a wizard when it comes to the technical aspects of broadcasting uh, video and audio. So he's going to be running uh, quarterback on a live broadcast on October 24th. We will have over 30 speakers. Um, 30 speakers was our limit in person. Um, we're going to be just over that with a couple of uh, kind of surprise guests that will be speaking this year. And the thing that hasn't changed is that anonymity in terms of like where is the money coming from, the complete lack of advertising or promotion for any organization or any company, and the thought diversity. And, and that thought diversity is the most important thing to me. And I think especially this year um, with the, the organizing committee that we have together, that's really kind of been the central focus that, that, that we've coalesced around this idea that, yeah, we want to talk about celebrating and defending the Second Amendment, but we want to do it with a cast of characters that, like, nobody can throw a rock and say they were left out, right? Like we, we've got military, we've got law enforcement, we've got the very political people, we've got people who want to stay out of the politics and just talk about the education and, and what's important to them about the, the Second Amendment community being prepared to defend themselves in the country if necessary. We've got other people who are deeply involved in the politics. We've got people who run organizations, people who are in private sector businesses. We have some people who aren't involved in any way of making money or running an organization. They're just they're people we know who have interesting stories that are passionate about Second Amendment rights, and they're speaking as well. Um, we have uh, Christians, Jews, 
atheists and uh, Muslims speaking this year, which is really important to me. We've got white, black, Hispanic, uh, Asian, uh, what am I missing? Uh, seems like we probably have some other ethnicities in there. If we want to combine them up, we have uh, gay, lesbian, uh, we have transgender, we have uh, regular old you know, heterosexual guys and girls, married couples, divorced couples. I've been divorced a whole bunch of times. I'm going to be there. It, it is... Um, we almost had a kid. That's kind of like the one demographic I guess we're missing is we don't have a, a minor um, and we're still holding out. We may actually have a, a mother daughter duo um, present a, uh, a speaking seg segment together. But um, it, it, we have people, like I said, who've been in the industry for decades and people who are brand new to the industry. And in fact, um, we have the um, locked and loaded Latinos. Um, Rolo and his wife are going to be there. They got inspired to start their podcast and become gun rights advocates when they attended last year's rally. So that's a really cool story for us from the first year to the second year is they're now back as speakers and they've, they've been incredibly active. It's not just like, Hey, you guys were there last year. Do you really want to do this? They started doing it like the week after the rally and they've put out a bunch of great content and done a bunch of things and been at a bunch of events over the last year. So they've definitely earned their spot on that speakers list. But um, again, having that, that sort of unassailable thought diversity there are people in the speakers list who vehemently disagree with one with one another in areas outside of the gun community. Um, you know, I, I would think of like like you know lifestyle issues with, with you know homosexual versus heterosexual. We've got again people of very dramatically different faiths and and how people who feel differently about whether their faith should be part of their gun rights advocacy or not. We've got people who feel very differently about even inside the gun community um, what what sort of tactics and techniques we should be using to advance gun rights or, or to talk about gun rights. And, and that's what I'm most proud of. And I think that's what the committee is most proud of is this <clears throat> huge swath of people. And that's where the heckling comes from. We will have people in our comments who will be heckling the speakers because they are passionate about second amendment rights, but they don't like that guy or that girl. Um, and, and even inside the gun community, forget about the other lifestyles issues. So I think that's cool. I, I'm, I'm excited about it. Rob, let me let me ask you this because I don't know that we've actually covered this here in this podcast yet. Um, and from an outsider's per outsider, I guess uh, you know I'm, I'm sort of new uh, outsider's perspective. I'm mindful of what our listening audience could be, and if it's uh, somebody who's skeptical or ambivalent, all we're hearing is gun rights, gun rights, gun rights. You're a leader in the community. Help under help people understand why this is so important. Why is the second amendment so important? Why, you know, why isn't it just some outdated fuddy duddy uh, thing of the constitution from a couple hundred years ago that, you know, it's like, ah, people are dying in mass shootings and people are dying by suicide. We should just get rid of guns. Like what, why is this so important to, to folks? It, you know, if I can tell you why it's important to me and, and what I want to do to get there is, is sort of ask the listeners who are in that category you're talking about. And, and obviously going to be, sort of respectful and accepting of that, right? So if someone's listening to this and you just, you aren't convinced that this is even a good idea. The first thing I would ask you to do is, is to think about when you would think it's a really good idea to have the means to defend yourself, right? And, and, and that could be your kids. It could be another family member. It could be, oh, well, if I were in this situation, I would want to be able to defend myself. And you might think of a hundred situations where a gun would not be the best way to do it. And I would probably, as a personal defense instructor, agree with you. I, I could probably come up with 200 times, you know, 200 situations where you need to defend yourself 
and a gun's not the way to do it. Or just you could avoid the situation. But we all know there are, there are situations you can't avoid. We all know there are people we care about who, even if they could avoid a situation, might not be avoiding that situation. And we might someday be in a position to potentially help them. That's the foundation of my interest in having access to firearms readily available, the training to use them, um, the types of firearms that would be useful in these worst case scenario extreme events. And those are the reasons that I take the time and effort in my life to secure the firearms from unauthorized access, to teach my kids, to talk to other family members, to talk to people when I go into their homes about the guns, to let people know if they're coming into my home about the guns. It's the reason that I spend the money on the safes and the holsters and, and the quality gear. It's the reason that I've practiced and trained and invested in my skill development is because of those moments. Now, do I enjoy guns? Do I, do I like guns as a, as a mechanical device the way somebody else might, you know, like, uh, I don't know, whatever their other, their hobby thing is. There's something like watches, right? So there's a, there's an aesthetic to a watch. There's the engineering of the watch. There's the craftsmanship for the watch. There's the design of the watch. I feel the same way about some guns, but ultimately, right. And, and go, let's go back to the car analogy. Ultimately, if, if, if you're going to take all of my guns away except one, the one that I'm going to keep is like the Honda Civic, right? It's the, it's the one that I can use it in its front-wheel drive, so I can use it in inclement weather. I'm not going to go off-roading with it, right? It's not going to be extreme, but if I needed to drive in a snowstorm, I could do it. If I needed to drive in a rainstorm, I could do it. If I needed to drive on a gravel road, I could do it. It's got enough power to pass somebody on the interstate, right, if I needed to. It's, it's got enough room to put some friends in, right? It's not, the, it's not a bus, but at the same time, it's not a smart car, right? It's small enough, though, to keep in a garage, to take into a city, to, you know. Do, so you understand that the analogy, we keep going back to it. If you're not a gun person, understand that the last gun I'm going to get rid of isn't, you know, something I got from my grandfather. It's not my most expensive collectible. It's the gun that I could most conveniently and efficiently have with me in a wide variety of circumstances to defend myself, my daughters, or someone else that I cared about. And, and, and that's me. So what I always like to do is try to find common ground. And I would hope that, that, you know, everybody has something that they feel is worth protecting themselves or their family, you know, their kids, their, their parents, whatever it may be. Now extend that to your way of life. Now extend that to our country if need be. And I think those two leaps can be huge for some people where some people just immediately just roll their eyes back and like, hey, we have an army, dude. Like, we don't need to defend our country with your, you know, Honda Civic pistol or whatever you're talking about. You're, you're a radical. And I get it. But we have to accept, going back to what Mike said, meet people where they are, that there are people who literally, they have that rifle and they have that 500 rounds of ammo and they have that rain jacket and they have that backpack with some, you know, dried food or whatever they've got in their closet ready to go for that moment. And, and it may be because of civil unrest in their community. It may be because their family needs them somewhere that they have to go. You know, they've got a, a, a sister or a niece or a, a cousin that's having a problem with someone that's stalking them and is a threat. And the guy's a fugitive from justice. They don't know where he is. That guy's going to grab that backpack, that raincoat, that probably not all 500 rounds, but he'll take 50 and he'll take that rifle and he'll go sit outside of her house and make sure she's safe or sit in an upstairs bedroom and make sure that she's safe. And, and that's real. And that, that, that may not be something that resonates with you, but that's a very, very real thing that 
some people can't afford to pay the professionals to do. Some people don't have access to those professionals. Some people need to do it themselves, and there's an urgency there. So I get it. You can read the Second Amendment and, and think, wow, that's outdated, and that's, there's no way we've got a standing army and drones, and you know, there's no way you know, a bunch of rednecks with their AR-15s are going to be able to defend our country. However, ultimately, that is the law of the land. And that's something we have to respect too. So you kind of have to meet your country where your country is. There's a, there's a, you know, if, if you were, it's 1927 and you wanted to buy a whiskey legally, there's a method, right? You can, you can go ahead and get prohibition repealed. And if you, it was 1906 and you didn't want people to be able to drink, well, there's a method. There's a way to get an, an amendment added to the constitution and, and get that outlawed. And I, and I believe in our political process. I believe in our country. I believe in the, that ultimately this natural right, this naturally existing self-evident right we all have to protect ourselves that has been codified in our constitution, both in the Declaration of Independence when, when it said, you know, we all have this life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that life, we have the right to a life, we have the right to defend our lives. And it's codified, maybe not the best language for today's conversations, but it's codified in the Second Amendment and that right to keep and bear arms for the purposes of defense is unassailable under the second amendment and, and we have to respect that too so whether you respect my personal views whether you respect the, the views I'm, I'm saying exist in other people or you're respecting the law of the land either way you know we get back to everybody's got a car and even if you don't have a car you live in a city with cars and a, a country with cars and you've got to just kind of deal with it from there and now how do we mitigate the risks that come with cars and mitigate the risks that comes with guns so so i, I hope that that's helpful. And, and even for maybe people who did run out and panic by a gun, going back to your question earlier, Jake, if you ran out and bought a gun because of the pandemic or because of civil unrest and it's kind of sitting there now and you don't even know how you got here or what you're doing with it, you know, consider some of the things I just said. And also consider that because it's a law in our country that you can have access to this gun, in most of our states, there's zero requirement for extra licensing or education. And a lot of people will say, well, you need a license to drive a car and you need to, you need to go get driver's ed. Let me tell you something. Your driver's ed class that you took when you were 15 to get your license, when you're 35 and you got your first great job and you've got that bonus paycheck at the end of the year and you go out and buy a 500 horsepower Corvette, that driver's ed class when you're 16 didn't teach you how to drive a Corvette on a wet road with 500 horsepower of the rear of the wheels with the engine up front and almost you know, no traction when you hit that go at the green light. And that's why you see a lot of wrecked Corvettes, right? <laughs> and that's very real. So, so even people who buy something other than that Honda Civic need to learn how to drive the four-wheel stuff, need to learn how to off-road, need to learn how to control the power, need to learn how to drive on a racetrack the same way gun owners need to learn how to do the specialized things other than just load it, unload it, and keep it in a safe. So there, there's work to be done. Um, there's plenty of people who want to do it with you. Reach out and, and ask for help. I got a, I got two follow-ups to that one. I'm going to, I'm going to ask him in, you know, succession because I know I'm going to get a, a really good answer from you. One is, um, why do you think that the second amendment right to firearms is so under attack as opposed to any other amendment that guarantees, you know, in our bill of rights, for example, uh, something else that's equally, applicable to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Why, why, why guns? What, what, whatever, how did this happen? How did it become political? 
It, there's, there's a couple different theories there. Um, I think the main reason it became political was complacency. Uh, people that w- really did care about firearms and really did care about the aspect of firearms um, being a part of American culture and, and sort of being a stable and unquestioned part uh, of American culture, like freedom of speech, for example, or freedom to travel, freedom, you know, privacy expectations, things like that. Um, the gun community was very complacent for a long time. Um, as people became less and less interested in firearms, uh, there weren't a lot of people running out there acting like this was some kind of tragedy, right? Um, uh, it, people became less and less um, agricultural in our country during the industrial uh, industrialization and, and the move from you know production in the South to production in the North and all of that stuff that happened in the mid-1800s um, did not come with... Uh, a lot of people continuing to hunt, continuing to shoot, you know, as our cities grew and as we industrialized, a lot of the rural ways of life sort of faded behind. Well, not most of them are not in stride. Like there's no guarantee to the, the right to, to plow, you know, in the constitution. So, and if there was, well, you know, I can't plow your land. I've got to have my own land. So if I don't have land, then who cares anymore? So people gave up this right to sort of as a matter of life, right? We had police departments, we had more structure, we had more communities, more of a, of a uh, application of the social contract as we as we settled the Western wilderness. You know, there was there was a lack of need and a lack of urgency, and then we got very complacent with it. So, fast forward to the Civil War, um, the, the NRA was actually founded after the Civil War as a marksmanship and and gun culture educational organization. Um, it was founded specifically to keep people uh, sharp in their weapons skills, uh, their marksmanship skills, their gun owning skills, and keep their interest up, specifically because the two generals, the former generals that started up, saw this incredible lack of readiness when it came time to actually defend a way of life or fight for a way of life in our country. There were a lot of the average people who had let their um, well-regulatedness fall apart. You know, in the, in the parlance of the 1700s, well-regulated meant well-equipped and well-trained. And that well-regulated militia was the people in the 1700s. So what they found was, wow, getting ready for the Civil War, we had some work to do. So, so the NRA's original vision was to try to keep people alive in this gun culture. And, and, it, and it didn't uh, really take because, again, there wasn't an urgency. There wasn't a need. Um, as we started fighting wars overseas and we started developing large standing armies and things like that, um, we, we started seeing less and less of a need and maybe even less and less of a rationale for the Second Amendment as it was interpreted at the time. Fast forward now, um, the huge spike in violence. Um, I was actually just looking at a slide talking about suicide prevention, but it, it, it sort of showed where almost consistently suicide rates and homicide rates in our country over the last 100 or 200 years have, have very much paralleled one another in the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs and the spikes with one glaring exception in the 1920s. And, and we think about the prohibition causing this huge spike in violence, a violent crime, the increase in the federal policing, increase in local policing, trying to curtail the illegal uh, trade in alcohol, and you have the gangsters and the Tommy guns and all of that, and there was a huge spike in the 20s that was, again, tied to prohibition in our country, and this, this crime wave, a huge spike in homicides that was not followed by suicide. Suicides did not follow this spiking trend. Really interesting when you look at this graph just saw it this morning and it just boom struck me because this story of where did gun control come from? Well, it starts with a guy who was running an illegal still that had a sawed off shotgun and had it hidden. They end up arresting the guy and they charge him 
with having a concealable destructive device uh, under under a, a law that ends up becoming the law of the land simply because by the time this got to the Supreme Court, the guy ran out of money and the lawyer didn't even show up. So the Supreme Court just said, okay, never mind. The ruling of the lower court stands and we now can't have short barrel shotguns. Um, and this is where a lot of this starts in the modern era. You get into the 1960s, very high profile assassinations, another crime wave going through our country, another time of civil unrest and, and political upheaval. And we get a massive amount of gun control comes in in the 1960s. Also, again, directly tied to the aftermath of the crime wave. That was, by the way, in the 30s after the crime um, in the 20s. Now you get it, it happens again in the 60s. And we see this huge shift, of the political cultural shift towards the, the uh what we now know as liberals or the, the uh, Democratic Party having so much more influence, especially in our urban areas. And one of the things that they established as a plank in their uh, the, the Democratic Party was gun control, restrictions on access to firearms. Because I do believe that there were people who really thought if we put restrictions in place, there'll be less crime, there'll be less assassinations, there'll be less homicide. And let's do this because it's going to make Earth better. And they, they sort of did that running roughshod over the Second Amendment. And, and they didn't follow the right procedure. They didn't change the Constitution. And since the late 80s, we've been pushing back really, really hard in regaining our rights, um, regaining our rights to conceal carry, regaining um, you know, the growth of gun ownership, the growth of the gun culture in our country. And we've really seen an incredible resurgence over the last 20 years. But you know, sort of that's the, the, the Rob perspective, boom, here's, here's 250 years of gun history politics in the U.S. And now where are we? We're in the middle of another uh, big spike in, in civil unrest. Um, we have rising crime in our cities. We've had it for a number of years in cities like Chicago. Now we're seeing it in, in New York City, which was saved from uh, the, the 60s and the 70s by very aggressive law enforcement and very draconian gun restrictions that were enforced by very aggressive law enforcement. And now there's going to be another call to let's restrict guns again. And the problem is for the gun owners, while we have gained a bunch of ground in a lot of ways over the last 20 to 30 years, we have not undone the gun controls from the 60s and the gun control from the, the 20s and 30s. So we're potentially looking at another incremental loss. And I think that's why you see so many people so passionate and fired up right now about things like Supreme Court picks and holding the Senate and, you know, maybe holding their nose and voting for somebody who isn't anti-gun just because a lot of people believe this is a fundamental right that will be infringed and will be encroached further upon without the proper constitutional procedures being followed unless we put the right people in office to protect that, regardless of anything else. It's a really good grad school seminar you just gave, back-to-back, uh, -back actually, and I'm going to tee you up for another one. And there's a lot of a lot of fertile ground I'd love to till there, um, but uh, in, the, in the interest of time, I just want to ask my second question, because I would re be remiss if we didn't have one of the fire, you know, foremost international firearms instructors uh, on our podcast who teaches defensive tactics uh, and not ask him how you go about communicating to people that guns aren't first. You want to de-escalate first. And um, how, what, what message would you give people um, based on all that litany of information you just disseminated? Why wouldn't we just like retreat behind our guns because they're the ultimate level of force uh, on the on the force escalation ladder. Um, what, why and how do we avoid going to that 
ultimate level? Well, the, the why is a lot easier than the how sometimes, but the, the why is, I, I mean, to me, I, I, I think you're asking, you know, so I'll say it out loud, I hope, um, because I think we all know, right? Like ultimately, the why is because I don't want to kill anybody. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like, like there's not some guy cuts me off in the in the parking lot of Walmart and I honk at him and then he gets mad because I had the audacity to honk at him. And I go park some other aisle. But meanwhile, he's mad because I honked at him. And he comes at me and he's like, hey. I'll park where I want jackass and gives me the finger. Like at that moment, it, depending on the whole, like how aggressive is he? Is he bigger than me? Are there four of them? You know, am I an older person who can't run away? Am I far away from my car? Is my daughter with me? Right. All of these factors, maybe reaching for my gun and, and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I honked, man. My bad, but I need you to back off right now is the right thing to do. Like under no circumstances is pulling the gun out and shooting the guy at that point, the right thing to do, right? Probably the right thing to do is not gesture towards your gun, not expose your gun, you know, put your hands up in a, in a kind of, and I know we're on, we're on radio, but you know, put, put your hands up in a calming way in front of you and show them your palms and just be like, Hey man, I'm sorry. I, my bad. I got frustrated. You probably didn't even see me. Didn't mean to honk at you. I'm going to go shopping, have a good day and just kind of back off. You know, keeping your eye on that person and being ready to go to your gun. If you ever, if he pulls out a knife, he pulls out a gun, he grabs a bat, he's big, you know, whatever the situation is when it's justified. But the idea that every single potential threat means you grab your gun and say, hey, man, I've got a gun, so you better leave me alone, ultimately leads to, I think, people believing if, if that's what I was teaching, right? If I was teaching, hey, you know what? If you show somebody your gun, you'll, it'll de-escalate because they'll be, you know, they'll know you're ready to protect yourself. Well, then why not carry your gun openly? Why not, why not wear an AR-15 over your shoulder when you go get coffee? Because then nobody's going to mess with you, right? Except that's not true. There are some people who aren't intimidated by the gun. There's some people who, who you know, they've been around with guns a lot more than you have. If they're, if they're living a criminal lifestyle, chances are they've had guns pointed at them before. Chances are they've seen guns in people's waistbands before. Chances are those other people had been in shootings and they, they knew it and you're not impressing them with the gun that you're, you know, holding in your waistband shakily as you, you know, hyperventilate <laughs> and your heart rate's going through the roof and you look like you're about to pass out because you thought you were going to go buy groceries at Walmart and now you're potentially going to get killed or have to kill somebody. So, so people don't anticipate, I think a lot of times, just how much they should be avoiding using the gun. Because, you know, I could have stopped that. I don't want to kill anybody. But you need to understand that there are people who think that's not a thing, right? They, uh, well, they had it coming. Had it coming, I get it. You know, you needed to, no other choice, I get it. But you got to make sure you've exhausted those other choices and make sure you really need to. And that's something we preach and talk about all the time, the difference between could and should. Could is what can you articulate under the law. Should is what did you really need to do. And if you should have just driven away or you should have never been there in the first place, that's really important. There's a, there's a great kind of cliched uh, line that has almost gone out of favor, um, unfortunately, in some segments of the gun community, but I, I, I constantly remind people of it. And it's important even for people outside of the gun community to know that the majority of us hold this opinion. If there's something you wouldn't do without a gun, or there's some place you wouldn't go without a gun, don't go there with a gun or don't do that thing with a gun. And that's important because, because if you see, if I see somebody in the gun community 
who wouldn't go stand in front of their buddy's dry cleaning shop with a rifle over there, you know, wouldn't go stand in front of that dry cleaning shop when there's civil unrest and looting and people are throwing rocks through windows. If he didn't have a rifle over his shoulder, he shouldn't be standing there with a rifle over his shoulder. If it's not that, if it's not worth it, right? It, I, people sneaking guns in their kids' graduations at high schools, right? Like you're not allowed to have the gun legally at the high school. If you think your kid's graduation is so dangerous that you can't go there without a gun, you probably shouldn't be letting your kid go to the graduation either, right? So, so it, it, it's a common sense to me, right? It's just simple lifestyle things. And I don't agree with the law that says you, you can't take your gun to your kid's high school graduation. But I do agree with the mentality that I shouldn't go there just because I have a gun. And if I'm too scared to go there without a gun, then I probably shouldn't be there and I should find something else to do with my time and, and keep my family out of that situation, keep myself out of that situation. And that to me is a really good bottom line because you know you said we always want to go to de-escalation. I, I will go one step further. We want to avoid conflict whenever possible. And Amen. then evade conflict if we can. And if we have to stay there and we're cornered, then we're talking about de-escalation and eventually we get up to using the gun to defend ourselves. But there should be a plethora of options that start when you wake up in the morning uh, long before you're thinking about drawing a gun on someone because of the the need to. Right. That's, that's one of the things I think about when I think of this kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, right. Um, one of the, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. I think one of the worst things that could possibly happen if you're out there and you're, you have a firearm on your hip or you have a firearm, you're strapped over your shoulder is something goes down and a person who's unarmed starts to come at you. Yeah. I mean, that's a nightmare. Right. And that's what that poor kid, you know, he's 17 years old, regardless of, of whether he was right or wrong, whether you hate him, you, you want him to spend the rest of his life in prison. That's something that happened. He was standing there and all of a sudden it was on. Right. It, and, and, and I think that's the scariest thing for anyone is now it's like, are you going to be a punk? Are you going to use that thing that you're toting around? And uh, he certainly did, <laughs> but yeah. It, he's not, I don't think he's the typical person. I think a lot of people would, it might become a bigger problem for them. If they're not ready to use it. Yeah. I, and I think that's a perfect example, right? I, I, I understand. I believe I understand why he wanted to be there, at least like the best version of possibly why he wanted to be there. Uh, if we go to the best possible reason he had to be there, I believe firmly if his gun was concealed and, and maybe not an AR or maybe a folding AR in a backpack, or he had a, a pistol under his shirt. I believe that, Two things. One, he would not have been targeted and antagonized by people who didn't think he was going to use it and weren't that impressed by it. And he probably would have behaved a little differently because he wouldn't have been expecting there, there to be an intimidation factor that just didn't play out that way. And, and I think that, you know, you look at the, the McCloskeys, uh, the, the couple that was standing out in front of their, you know, home, their, their like uh, home with the white columns. And, they, and, all and that. they now have Christmas cards, by the way. Yeah, they, they, um, they didn't intimidate anybody, but you know, remember they don't get credit for defending themselves because nobody was attacking them. There was a crowd moving past their home and they ran out on the porch, waving guns at each other and the crowd and the crowd mocked them and continued on their way. So, you know, they don't get credit for having defended themselves the way Kyle did, but they were in exactly that same kind of situation where they, they thought they would never have gone out on the porch and yelled at that crowd if they didn't have guns in their hands. And that's why they should not have been out on that porch. 
And if they weren't going to go out on that porch because they felt so compelled to do it, if the gun was concealed, it all would have played out very differently. And I think that's, that's true 99.9% of the time. The gun comes out when you need to use it to defend yourself, not as a show of force. Cause that, that seems like an unpopular opinion to me. Is it? Uh, in, in certain segments of the gun community, it's absolutely an unpopular opinion, you know, because, because again, let's go back to my right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, so I'll go there with you. You should have the right to walk down the street with the AR, with a gun on your hip, whatever. And that's what the constitution says. And that's what the law of the land should be. However, as a personal defense educator and as a gun responsibility advocate, I'm going to tell you, you probably shouldn't 99 times out of hundred. Uh, real simple. If you're within 10 miles of a restaurant with a drive through or a convenience store, your gun should be concealed. All right. If you're, if you're, you know, up in the Appalachian trail or you're on the back 40 or you're out on the res, or you're up in the mountains camping, whatever. Cool. Have at it. But if, if you're just going to the grocery store, picking your kids up from school or walking to the ice cream shop, conceal it, you know, it's infinitely better. The, the other th- thing I'll do is I'll tell you, look, if I were a financial planning, like investment guy, if that was my job to instruct you in that, to advise you in that, to put things out on the internet, to help people that are dealing with those issues, right? Because I deal with personal defense, I deal with gun rights, responsibility and advocacy. But if my thing were investing and you came to me and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking I might want to do. I'm going to sell all my stuff cash in all my current investments, clear all my bank accounts, because I see there's a big jackpot on the billboard. I'm just going to go buy a bunch of lottery tickets and I'm going for that 150 million, man. What do you think? I'm going to say that's not a great idea. And I'm going to be able to tell you a whole bunch of reasons why it's not a great idea and why you shouldn't do that, right? None of them indicate that I want the government to step in and make it illegal for you to buy lottery tickets and sell all your stuff, right? And, and unfortunately, in the gun community, we've gotten to a point in certain segments of the community where if you say, hey, look, I don't think you should do that. I don't think that's the best course of action. It's heard as oppression. It's heard as, oh, you think the government shouldn't let me carry my gun in public. You're an anti-gun guy. And that's unfortunate, but it's real. And, you know, there's, there's fingers to be pointed at, at some of the would-be leadership and the loudest voices in our community over a long period of time that, you know, sort of pushed everybody into this victim attack posture um, with our victim defense posture as if we're constantly being attacked. And I'll, I'll take us back to the beginning. That's one of the big parts of Walk the Talk America is ending that stigma around weaponized mental health. You know, if you talk about people voluntarily storing their guns at a friend's house when they're going through a crisis – well, that's red flag laws. I don't want the government taking my guns. And it's like, no, I, I think you missed the word voluntary. You missed the word friend. And you missed the fact that I'm about as diehard a guy who's invested more time, effort, and energy in defending the Second Amendment as you could possibly find the United States of America still alive today. So, no, I'm not anti-gun just because I said, with everything that's going on, man, you might want to think about you know having your guns over at my place or somebody else's place or down at the local gun shop because right now you surviving until tomorrow is more important than you having the gun because, you know, make it equal 2% chance that you going and asking for help from a mental health professional is going to result in you losing your gun rights for the rest of your life. I'd say it's even well, less than that. Well, no, but let's just pretend for a yeah, second. Yeah. 2%, but also there's a 2% chance that you're going to impulsively reach for one of those guns tonight and take, take your life. I'll, I'll risk you losing your guns, you know, if all things mm-hmm. are, are equal. And the problem is we know the chances of any individual 
that has access to a gun reaching for that gun and make, committing a suicide attempt are incredibly low. What we don't know as well in the gun community is just how incredibly low the chances are that you're going to have any legal ramifications from calling a suicide prevention hotline, certainly from asking a friend or a family member for help or just venting a little bit and kind of seeing where it goes, or even talking to a mental health professional. You know, the VA gets a bad rap. Like, oh, I'm not going to talk to the VA because they're going to take my guns. It is really, really difficult for the VA to take a veteran's guns. It's really, really difficult for any mental health practitioner to put themselves in a position where they can un, you know, take away your guns that you aren't willing to give up. And yet, that's a fear. So people think, okay, it's .0002 that I could you know, impulsively try to take my own life tonight, but it's like 47% chance they're gonna take my guns if I call this 800 number. And it's just not true. And that's a big part of where Walk the Talk America started. And it's important that as cool as these other little tangents are, it's, it's always got to be part of our focus is to educate gun owners about the myths and, and the inappropriate fear of just asking for help. Well, and I think, and, and I don't want to speak too soon on this, Jake, because I don't want to jinx it, but I know um, I've been in part of uh, some numerous conversations for the state of Nevada, and I think you have too. Um, between the governor's challenge and the mayor's challenge and the push to now change some of the language in the law that doesn't allow us to necessarily give our firearms to our friends and leave the house without both becoming felons, right? Like that, that conversation happens because of the way our attitude was, um, we wouldn't have had been, we wouldn't been able to, to have expressed like, Hey, this is something that we need to do. We need to change it. We need to do something. We need to put a good Samaritan clause in, right, for circum- certain circumstances. Um, and that's just one example. And see, that's something that probably, you know, if that's successful, like, we're not going to get any credit for that. That's And that's fine, right? Because we've always talked about Walk Talk America is not about getting credits, but actually saving lives and doing things. But those are the type of things that we accomplish when we play with other people's ideas in a nice manner. You know, um, because we're able, we have the opportunity to say, you know, hey, you think that law is saving lives? Here's where it may hurt some people. You might make some people criminals, (laughs) you know, felons. So, 100%. And and I think, you know, what you're referring to there is is a little twofold. There's there's the red flag laws, or otherwise known as ERPO or Extreme Risk Protection Order, ERPO is the acronym laws that um, allow a a judge or law enforcement, uh, sorry, sorry, a family member or law enforcement to petition a judge to um, issue the rights restriction to remove firearms from the individual who's demonstrating the the erratic behavior that might uh, jeopardize self or others. And then there's the transfer laws that require a background check in order to hand guns over to somebody else. Um, and, and we have such a, a tight restriction on both. Um, on one hand, we have the, the red flag laws that have a, an absolute path to rights restriction, and it's very clear, and it's a lower threshold of, of, um, of evidence. And the language in Nevada's law, for example, and most of them replicate each other. Uh, New Jersey is the only one that I know that, that says any person may petition a judge as opposed to all the others that say uh, family member or law enforcement. But the path is... Um, preponderance of evidence that the person may harm self or others with firearm but then the path to rights restoration is clear and convincing evidence 
but we don't know what that means. And so the, in the hierarchy of burden of proof, we've got a lower threshold to restrict access and a higher threshold to restore access, but we don't have a clear definition of what that looks like. And so what I propose through Walk the Talk America is we use our, our three-part course to train mental health providers to be certified to go out and um, and decertify somebody who's who's been deemed um, you know unable to to have their guns, and then the flip side of that is um, the transfer laws. And what Rob's done a really good job of, he's got a ten minute video on the Walk Talk America YouTube channel to, that describes how to disarm someone without actually seizing their their firearms, so that you break the law. Um, we need to, to do what you suggested, Mike, which is in, invoke some sort of uh, Good Samaritan period, uh, 72 hours, something like that, whereby a well-intended person in good faith can take someone's guns who may not know how to um, remove the magazine, um, clear the chamber, um, separate ammunition from gun, take, a, take apart the firearm, you know, because if this person's so dysregulated that they can't function because they're such a threat, they're probably not going to be willing to walk the interventionist through the process of dismantling every firearm. And I'll use myself as an example. I've got several firearms in my home. And if I'm so dysregulated that I'm at risk of harming self or others, I'm not going to sit there and take the time to tell everybody how to, or tell one person who may be with me, how to open up every firearm. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm out of my mind. I need help, you know? Um, and I'm certainly not going to take the steps to get in the car, go to the FFL dealer, pass the background check for my friend to whom I want to transfer my guns, pay the fee. Um, those are all, those are all inhibitions to, um, to care access. And what we want to do is we want to alter the law. We don't, I'm not interested in taking the laws off the books. There's there's well-intentioned people who who think that these things matter, and there's some evidence that maybe suggests that they're they're worthwhile. So I don't want to I don't want to just repeal all the laws as though I know best. What I want to do is is make some sort of intervention uh, in the law that allows for latitude in those crisis moments that gives uh, an ability for a a well-meaning person in good faith to do the right thing. And I think that's where we can step into that fold because really nobody else is bothering to do it. And we could do so with great intentionality from a mental health perspective. It says, hey, you know, I as a clinician am struggling to get people to come seek help because of these, you know, apparent restrictions in a person's life. And some of them are not apparent. They're actually real. And what can we do legislatively? Walk Talk America is not interested in um, altering policy, but where we found ourselves is being invited into the conversation about, hey, what can we do about these policies? And, and I think that's really cool. And we want to be very judicious about how we go about, um, you know, altering that so that we're not putting our name into a political foray uh, such that we get pigeonholed as, you know, right or left or whatever it is that then invalidates our entire mission. So I, I'm glad you bring that up. Um, I want to be mindful of time. We're, you know, we're coming up on an hour and a half with Rob and he's been a good guest and all that. Um, Rob's raising his hand. He wants to talk. On the, uh, just, just to be clear on the intention of that video. First, it's not my intention that when we say disarm, it's not my intention that somebody's going to watch this video and forcibly take. Right, gun. right, 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 right. Yeah. We're not doing jujitsu. 
Right. And well, not even, even that, like the idea that you would even do it surreptitiously, I think is, is a violation of trust, right? What we're trying to do is, is build trust between whether it's the caregiver or the family member, the friend and the person who's in crisis or the person who might see themselves heading towards it because of factors in their life, right? You know, you've got underlying conditions and you've got history and you've got this and then you've got the current life events, right? So the, the lost the job and the divorce and your car broke down and your dog died and your kid just moved out like, whoa, like, and you're hitting the bop. Okay. Maybe it's the time to get the guns out of the house. Right. At that moment, if you live, if you live in a state where you can't transfer the gun, the purpose of it, the, the video and the conversation is to remind everybody that you can just take the firing pin or you can take the operating rod. Or you can take like kind of any key component that isn't the registered firearm, not commit the felony and still have done what you need to do for your friend. But all of this is presuming that they're, they're willing and complicit in that. The other thing I want to say is that this is the tricky space that, that walk talk America lives in, right? Um, it's incredibly important that the legislators understand what potentially they're doing when they put that language in there that says, I can't take my brother's gun without going through a background check that with, with more suicide, 60% of firearms related deaths in many years uh, in the past decade are, are suicides, right? So, so the vast majority, the, the, a, the majority and a vast number of firearms related deaths maybe could be prevented if we institute as a way of being this safe storage or separation of firearms or letting somebody hold the firing pins behavior inside of the gun community. If you legislate in a way that, that makes people think now they're committing a felony as a preventative measure when it's not really risen to a certain level, like it's not worth it, I don't want to get involved, now somebody could end up dead. So that's a very important message for the legislators. On the other hand, it is disingenuous for people that are in the gun community to use that as an excuse not to get involved, not to have the conversation, because we all know, well, maybe not Mike yet, but I could teach you, Mike where the firing pin is and how to disassemble the gun. And, and, you know, we, if you're in the gun community, you know where the, what part is the legal gun, which part is the felony to take to your house and which part you can take from the gun complicitly, you know, with, with the person's willing, um, you know, supervision, participation, acknowledgement, permission, whatever you want to use there. And that's a fine line because what happens then everybody, we, we start, we, we become the fear people. We become the potential victims, right? We say, I've had this conversation with people in our community who are like on our side who say, wait a minute, Rob, if you put that video out there, the legislators are going to say, well, we don't need to change the law because you can just take the firing pin. And, and I get it, except we're trying to help people here. We're not trying to play politics. Right. So we need the legislators to do the right thing. We need the gun owners to do the right thing. And yes, that means that they're potentially we can change the law and or you can just take the firing pins. We don't need either side to say, you know, oh, gotcha. We don't need to change anything. And for Mike, it's the it's the part with the serial number. What is it, the serial number? I don't know. <laughs> Some stamp somewhere. Hey, ask ask uh, ask your question because we're running out of time, and I got to go to supervision, and I don't want to disappoint my uh, my fledgling clinicians. Okay, okay, Mister Pincus. Uh, you know, as someone who's been open about divorce and pain and going through all these things, um, and now that you're in this mental health. Uh, realm, if you will. Um, how do you tend to your mental health? That's a, that's a super awesome question. Um, and actually one that we haven't talked about publicly, I don't think that I recall. So for me, I do really rely on a, on a peer network. 
um, some of my, my personal mentors, uh, you know, just, just conversations. I mean, Mike, you and I have talked a lot about um, divorce issues and, and, you know, kind of single parent dad of daughters issues. And those, and so I was kind of half joking earlier when I said, you know, every time I talk to Jake, I'm going to consider that a therapy session. That really is for me being really open, um, particularly with people. Um, and you know, and you took that first step, you know, well over a decade ago, Mike, you were like super open with me, like, Hey, here's what I'm dealing with. Here's what I'm struggling. And you sort of set that example for me that, that that's okay. So you created a very safe space by being like kind of vulnerable and honest when you were going through kind of the worst parts uh, of, of what you were going through for, to create a space for me to be able to come back and go, dude, I'm there. Right. And I've sat in your kitchen and I've like fucking boohooed and told you like, Oh, here's where I am. This is why I'm not good. And you know, I guess you can edit out the fact that I just said effing, but the, or not, <laughs> but that like those moments, they, those were empowered by the fact that, that you, you went there first. Right. I just spent uh, three or three or four days at a, a buddy's house uh, with him and his kids uh, in the aftermath of his wife passing unexpectedly. And, you know, we've been friends, very close friends for a long time. We've both been through a lot of things together and I just wanted to be there for him. He's got an apartment, um, you know, out over his uh, garage and, and, you know, kind of be out of the way, but also be there and just have the conversations. And, and, you know, I hope that was, was helpful for him and his kids, just, just having me there for those conversations. Um, but at the same time, there are, there are more, uh, I would say codified, uh, methodologies, you know, uh, mindfulness or meditation or just kind of like, you know, even combat breathing is something that's taught in the gun community and law enforcement military community a lot. The idea of just kind of slowing yourself down and controlling the way you breathe and just focusing inward on your breath to calm you in the aftermath of, you know, some kind of battle gunfight defensive situation. Well, you can do that in the aftermath of any kind of an emotional crisis or an emotional, you know, just poke as well. And so having those techniques, whether it's, you know, and I'm, I'm horrible at traditional meditation, I don't have the focus, right? And my brain just kind of wanders, but I can do guided meditation, right? So I can go to the phone and, and hit a guided meditation, or I can do combat breathing. You know, I've, I've got, uh, I've actually got my walk the talk beads here, um, and I'll wear, you know, full strands of mala sometimes. And again, it, there's nothing spiritual or mystical about this to me, but that the, the, the method of just pushing that bead or pulling that bead back and the fact that it, you know, you don't use your index finger and, and the mysticism of that doesn't matter to me, but the, the motor control, the fact that you have to focus on how you're doing this, counting the bead or whatever it is you're, you're saying to yourself as you calm it down and the way you're using your hands and your, your fingers and to do something you don't normally do and you really can't do absentmindedly it focuses me. Right. Or, or um, again, it, I have a, a tattoo that just says breathe. You know, um, and it, it's just, so there's just little reminders, um, friends focusing inward, focusing on some small task, a calming task. Um, those are really the ways I deal with crisis type moments. Um, on the broader scale, I will say that, that being around this community and talking through problems and hearing other people talk about their problems also has given me some real perspective on sort of where that threshold is when I might be, be inclined to go and, and talk to a professional, but also where that threshold is in terms of perspective of, you know, my life isn't that bad. Like, like the worst days I've had are, are incredibly not bad compared to a lot of people that have gotten through other things. And, and that's not me saying I should suck it up. That's me saying, you know, have perspective, kind of worry about the things you can, you can change, worry about the things you need to worry about and, and, you know, stay calm, stay focused. I mean, that's kind of my personal list of strategies, I guess. Well, go ahead, Mike. 
No, I was just going to say that's that's I, I, there's so much that I relate to there. I mean, we we have had some deep conversations. Um, I have closure tattooed on my arm. <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. You know, it's there's certain things. Uh, you know, I'd say, I'd, to find out that you actually use the beads, I do the same thing when I wear my beads. Like it's very calming to me just looking at them. Um, but no, go ahead, Jake. Um, I what I appreciate is that I think. My impression of you, I, I, I learn something every time I, I talk and listen to you, Rob, and I, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, what I learned here is that my impression of you in the community is that you're this leader, very intellectual, very cerebral, um, can command a, a valid opinion, a well-articulated opinion on a variety of topics across a variety of subjects, and uh, have it very deeply ingrained and be very strong in your communication and simultaneously there's this vulnerability that i think most dudes are averse to simply because opening up invites vulnerability vulnerability invites intimacy intimacy brings people together and it comes with risk and what's the risk well harm you know you could be hurt if you open up and somebody doesn't respect that doesn't honor it invalidates it um and the fact that you just shared what you did, I think, is an invitation to other males for sure, but um, people in general that says vulnerability is actually strength. We don't we don't want to talk in terms of weakness because a lot of people eschew weakness as being bad. Weakness and vulnerability are not equivalent. We want to be vulnerable because it actually, through that vulnerability, we grow and we become strong. So I appreciate that you just put that out there for everybody. Um, you're this, um, you know, person who emits strength every time you speak. And for, for people to be able to hear, no, Rob, Rob can be vulnerable and honest and raw. And it's a, it's a hallmark of strength, I think, is very, very cool. So thank you for that. And um, i got to wrap up because we I've got to go into supervision with my interns. But... Um, I thank you for uh, being a board member, inviting me in, uh, shepherding me the way that you did with your your wisdom and continue to do with uh, all the knowledge that you share. Mike, um, thank you for uh, being as as good of a friend as you are. And on behalf of the Walk the Talk America family, uh, we wish you all great mental wealth and health and happiness and balance. Goodbye.